Okay, Joshua chapter 6 and verse 3 we, is a cross-reference to Hebrews 11.30 where it says the walls of Jericho fell down. So we're studying Hebrews 11.30 and we're looking up Joshua 6. Let's all turn to it and we'll look at that incident. Joshua 6, starting with verse 3. It says here, and you shall march. Actually, um, look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, and its king and the valiant warriors. Then it says in verse 3, so this is the Lord. It's important that this is the Lord, okay? And you shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. You shall do it for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, that on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns. And then he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men go before the Ark of the Lord. So they did what they were told to do, and we have the record here of what they did. And um, verse 16, And it came about at the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city shall be under the ban, and it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourself from the things under the ban, lest you covet them and take some of the things under the ban, so you will be make the camp accursed and bring trouble on it. So they did what what it said, what the Lord told them to do, and they conquered the city, and Rahab was spared. So that is going to be our example of faith. Um, one of the things that I think is important about this is that they had specific revelation from God about this. I've seen people take this and decide that's what they need to do. Well, you know, let's march around the sanctuary seven times and shout. Or uh, One time there was a fellow who uh, came to the Lord. Interesting, this was back in the early 80s. There was a man whose wife brought him here. And she, uh, she was upset because her husband wasn't saved, so she brought him to church. Well, he got saved. But she was really flaky. She was one of these word of faith people. And... Um, so I started discipling her husband. He came in once a week and we just opened the Bible together and I helped him grow in the Lord. But he had more and more problem with his marriage and the more he served the Lord, the more his wife didn't like him until she finally divorced him. And she was supposed to be a Christian, but she was really weird because she used to smoke marijuana when she was reading the Bible because that way she got better revelations. And one of the things that he was, she was mad at him about was uh, he was, was a truck driver. He used to drive from St. Paul to Green Bay and back every, every day. And um, 
she wanted to be wealthy because she was uh, going to this church that they taught health and wealth. And so she she wanted him to go with her and march around this fancy house somewhere. It was like back then it was like a $250,000 house. Was, this was in the 80s, right? You know, today that'd just be ordinary, but that was a big house then. And so she wanted to march around it seven times because, see, this is how you get things. So that's what Joshua did. And he said, I'm not going to march around somebody's house seven times, and I'm just a truck driver. I'm not going to be able to afford a $250,000 house, so just get that idea right out of your head. <laughs> well, she divorced him because she couldn't tolerate him. But the interesting thing was that uh, he really grew in the Lord. It was, it was kind of a sad story because she was getting, false doctrine will damage you. Amen. If you Amen. believe false doctrine, it'll hurt you, it'll hurt your family, it'll hurt your spiritual well-being. That's exactly what happened to her. But what was wrong with the idea that you could march around somebody's house that you want seven times? Yeah, it's a tip. Well, if you got what you were looking for, the house would fall flat. <laughs> 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 if it fell flat, then what good would it be? That's a good point. I never thought of that. Well, uh, what? <laughs> well. Well, the reason I tell that story, and I, maybe you have similar, have you ever seen other people say we need to march around something seven times to, to try to get it? Um, here, here's, uh, this is a hermeneutical issue, and some, some people that are taking the class that Brian's teaching are very excited about it. I've heard very good reports about what's going on in that class, so I'm glad to hear that. We'll, we'll have to repeat it. Why is it a hermeneutical issue? Well, we need to know what God has said. Now, what they had that we don't have was specific revelation from God to them about a particular time and place. There's nothing in the Bible that would indicate this is normative for all future people. That any time in any place future, if somebody wants something, they just, you know, like the city of Jericho, you just march around the seven times and shout, because that's what is going to happen. God only told them to do that once, and they had authoritative word from God to do it, so that's why it was valid. It's not a principle that if you repeat it, you'll always get the same result. So that's just simple hermeneutics, but it's amazing how many people don't understand that. Yes. The, an interesting thing I see there is that the plan was given to Joshua, but then Joshua had to go to the people Convince them. The plan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they had to be like, you know, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> seven times. You got to be, well, it turned out to be only like 300 people anyway, didn't it? God whittled down. The, no, that was Gideon, the 300. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. One, of, one of the things about the faith movement is that when these people go and march around this house seven times, yeah. and it doesn't become theirs, then the faith church. Well, you just don't have enough faith. You don't faith. have enough faith, right. Yeah. So it's, always, it's never the fault of the false doctrine. It's always the fault of the people that have been listening to the false doctrine. You can count on that one. You know, If you're not healed, it's your fault. If you're not wealthy, it's your fault. It's not the fault of Benny Hinn or whoever told you this. Lonnie. Well, I'm just curious how they got that idea because that was just for Joshua at his time. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's bad hermeneutics. <coughs> they, they don't understand how to read and understand them. You do that with everything. 
Right, and that's why we teach hermeneutics, because we want people to not make these same kind of mistakes. It, maybe it does, it just seems like common sense, but some people just don't get it. They say, well, it worked for Joshua, why wouldn't it work for us? Or they may say, God told us to do it, because they're going by their own subjective revelations. They, and this was the Lord himself that appeared and spoke to them. And Remember the captain of the, of the host was there? So they, it wasn't like they were just going by some idea that, well, let's go do this and maybe it'll work. So we need to know what's normative. Yeah, we need to get the mic going. Okay, Susie, here. Sorry, I came out of the Word and Faith Movement. I don't have a clue what hermeneutics is. Oh, okay. <laughs> See, they kept you in the dark. The good question, hermeneutics is a study of how one interprets the Bible. And it's, it's really based on just how you read literature. And we're teaching that on Monday nights. And uh, Ryan is using three basic ideas that, that, are, that are foundational. Number one, meaning. Where does one get meaning? Meaning is determined by the author. And that's true for any literature, any written document. Now, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that makes some people think secret code or something, or that you interpret it by personal revelation. No, it's a written document. It's inerrant. It's unique because it's the only document inspired by the Holy Spirit, but you still read it like you would read anything else, and you still interpret it like you would. So if somebody wrote you a letter and they said a certain thing, then what they meant is what you want to know. So the first principle is meaning, what did the author mean? Okay. Now when you're doing, when you're interpreting narrative, what you have here is the author means what? What's his point? Well, the point is, that God kept his promise, that when they believed God and obeyed God, God kept the promise that he made to them. And so the author of Hebrews is interpreting it as an example of faith, believing what God said. Now, the word of faith people have some things right. It's true that we should believe what God said. But what they get wrong is thinking that God said that everybody needs to be wealthy in order to please God. If God actually said that, then we should believe it, right? So that's why we have to get it right. Now, the second principle in hermeneutics, after the meaning, is implications. The implications are just as authoritative as meaning. And Ryan's been talking about that. He's going to repeat the class in the spring for those of you who didn't get a chance to go there, but the people are going are getting a lot out of it. An implication would be something that's logically connected to what's stated in the text, and implications are just as authoritative as the scripture itself. Um, and so he'll explain what that is, any kind of a logical implication. And the applications are many. There are many applications. And applications would be a correct uh, taking of the text, believing it, and, and applying it to your own life and your own situation according to the meaning and the implication. I'm gonna, we got a little book that's coming out that's gonna be, I think we're gonna probably title, entitle it A Berean's um, Discernment Tool for the Purpose Driven Life or something like that. And, and what we have is columns. One column, it's already done that part of it, I had to write the forward. There's a column that has every verse in that entire book as quoted by Rick Warren. We get the page number, how he quoted the verse, the reference, which you have, normally have to go back into the footnotes to find, and what translation it is. So anybody can see, here's the verse, and then here's how it's quoted. And then in the right column is the New American Standard, the entire verse of, of that same 
passage. So you could just look right there and say, wait a second, that's not what that means. Or that's, that's not a correct translation, or it's not even a complete quote. And then I'm going to write a forward, and I'm going to explain hermeneutics, and then give examples from the purpose-driven life, how he gets meaning wrong, how he gets implications wrong, and how he gets applications wrong. And then just, just examples. And I say, now you're on your own, but you, you can take this to your purpose-driven life study group and be a Berean. And we'll make it easy for you. Amen. What's that? <laughs> how, well, it could be entitled, How to Get Kicked Out of a Purpose-Driven Life Study Group. Larry, you're next. Oh, here's, the, here's the mic. Yeah, you know, one of the good things about the hermeneutics class, what you mentioned in terms of the way people are using that is, is that what came up is what was unique and what was normative, what was uh, descriptive, what was prescriptive, because that's a descriptive account. But, you know, it's the sharp sort of discernment that, you know, finds those things that are prescriptive or I guess another way of saying it is imperative and indicative. So yeah. years ago I couldn't see that, but now because that stands out, because that's not a normative situation, that's a unique situation. Right. Like so many other things in the Bible are made normative that aren't normative. Exactly. Descriptive and prescriptive, those are important categories. When it says something happened, then what we know is that it happened. But it doesn't necessarily mean go and do thou likewise. Because there's a lot of bad things that happen in the Bible that you wouldn't want to, that are not prescriptive. Or even something that was a good thing one time doesn't mean that it's normative for all people. Um, uh, oh, good example. And then, Dan, you don't need a mic, but I'll get to you in a second. <laughs> <laughs> you got an internal one. One example is that word of faith is some have fallen from the faith and pierced themselves through it with many evils because they have coveted. Money. Using God to get money. And God says the love of money is the root of all evil. There's nothing wrong with money, but you praise God to get your daily bread. God will lift up who he sees, and God will bring down who he desires. You see, using God to get money. They've fallen from the faith. What faith? Give a dollar, get a hundred. This isn't the faith that we got in Jesus Christ. The faith is we covet the good things. Patience, long-suffering, hope, joy, and use what God has given us, the five loaves and the five fishes. Let him multiply it for loving God above all and your fellow man as yourself. It's always get, get, get. I don't see a lot of these people on the street out there. It seems like it's always this billful, you know, to get money. And it just amazes me, uh, Benny Hinn and all these people after the money. Take the money out of it and see if they're down in Mexico. See if they're down there bearing witness to the gospel. And you know, where your heart lieth, their lieth your riches. The faith we got is beyond that. Got to give us our daily bread. I'm sick and tired. It's all about money. It's all about them. It's all about Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he's given us. And use it to his glory. Okay. So I told you we didn't need a mic. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, somebody mentioned the prayer of Jabez. Very good example of taking something descriptive and making it prescriptive. All right? It's just a basic hermeneutical error. And because we don't you know, often teach these things, people don't see it. It, it makes sense. Well, work, you know, work for Jabez. Well, uh, again, it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. Yes, uh, Jerry. I'll just comment by way of mockery, if that's okay. Okay. Um, uh, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, I would put the label of improper uh, discernment through implication 
on one of the current mantras of the Word of Faith movement, which is it crosses the line. It's not just interpreting something descriptive improperly, but it's mixing various scriptures. And what made me decide to speak up is when you said go there and do likewise. But this is a very important mantra that is quoted by the Word of Faith people. God is no respecter of persons. What he did for Abraham, he will do for you. Go and do therefore likewise. Wow. And that is, it's said as a scripture. And I had another pastor who said, well, if that's true, then we could say Judas went out and hung himself. Go and do likewise. Okay, good. Again, there's, the Bible would not give you the indication. In fact, the Bible everywhere says that the covenant with Abraham was unique to Abraham. All right? And if it applied to anybody, then we all have a land from the Euphrates to the Nile in our future. Okay? But obviously it was just for Abraham. So that's why we need to learn a study. Now, there's a little study guide that we're going to publish. And the first book, the book that I wrote is at the publisher, but we got to get that going, then we're going to get this other one done. But there's so many examples, and it'll help people learn hermeneutics. Because if you learn and to discern, it's for your own safety. Let me give you an example. There's errors in meaning in the purpose-driven life. What's an error in meaning? Well, he's, he quotes, um, he wants people to, to go on this journey to discover their purpose. So he quotes Matthew 16.25 from the message, where it says, that through self-sacrifice, you'll discover your true self. All right? That's what it says in the message. Well, the New American Standard or the King James or the New King James or even the NIV will, would never lead you to think that you're going to discover your new self. It says if you lose your life, you'll find it. Well, what you're losing is your l- sinful life of serving self, and what you're finding is eternal life, Amen. not your true self. Your true self is sort of a... New Age idea, you know, that, that there's this inner child that's been hidden and you've got to d- discover. Well, that's an error in meaning. The, that passage, Matthew 16, 25, doesn't mean that. So if you get the meaning wrong, don't even forget about implications and applications because you, you can't make a true implication from a false meaning. All right? So that, I'll probably use that in my book. Well, let's take some of the other examples. How about application? It's, he says in the book, you should believe that God has chosen you for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, he uses that from Ephesians. But what's wrong with that? Well, the passage in Ephesians only is applicable to Christians. Christians. When it says I, you know, that, that we're chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world, we there is Christians, not everybody in general. Amen. And so he made an error in application by taking something that only applies to Christians and applying it to everybody in general. So that's an error in application. Well, then there's errors in implication. And, all. and so every possible way you could misuse the Bible, that book does it. But then, then sometimes he gets it right. So later in, in Romans 8.28, he has a very good um, explanation of the meaning an application of Romans 8.28, and he gets it absolutely right. So I'll probably put that in my forward and say, sometimes it's right. So that's why we're doing this Brian's guide. Yeah. You have to check out every time yourself. 
whether this is right. And then by using the guide, if you're in one of these purpose-driven life study groups, you'll also be learning hermeneutics and you're learning how to be a discerner and you'll probably get kicked out of the group. But but all the better, then you can go to a real Bible study once you're kicked out of there. So uh, we're going to try to get some things in people's hands. So what we were saying is that this idea that because Joshua marched around Jericho seven times, uh, doesn't mean that if we want to claim, you know, go down to the, pick out the car you want and go down to the lot and just go around it seven times, uh, that you'll get your car. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the little guy in the butterfly, the butterfly net might take you away. <laughs> okay, um, Mike. Yeah, I think so. a lot of these, um, you know, word of faith, uh, teachings, uh, you, you talked about a formula. And uh, I think a good verse that addresses that is in John 21. Uh, Jesus was talking to Peter and says that Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved uh, was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And I think uh, what this passage shows is that God is sovereign and he has a will for each of us, but that doesn't mean it fits into a cookie-cutter type of formula where we all experience the same thing, get the same benefits. And here he's telling Peter that, no, Peter, I'm going to require this of you, and you're not to worry about what I require of John. Right. Amen. That's and, true. And uh, so I think a lot of times we compare ourselves, and we're always looking to, gee, you know, that guy's, that guy's doing a good work. I have to do what he does. Or, you know, this person's suffering this trial, and... Uh, why is that? But I don't think we're supposed to compare ourselves to each other that way. Uh, yeah, in fact, there's a pa- thank you, Mike. There's a passage in in Second uh, Corinthians 10 that says that ought not to compare ourselves with one another. If God wants to prosper somebody, that's fine. God God does do that, but He He also may allow us to go through afflictions because He knows what uniquely each of us need for our own well-being, and our well-being is judged in regard to being conformed to the image of Christ. That's well-being. Tyler, then Dean. There's immediately following what what he just said. um, Then the disciples started talking among themselves about how Jesus said he wasn't going to die. But then it clarifies right there in the text, he's not, Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die, but that if I want him to remain until my coming, what is that to you? And so the disciples themselves were showing that they didn't understand Jesus' words. They were misusing them and there's a clarification right there about yeah you can't just take it and make it say whatever you want whatever exactly that's a good point okay uh, dean uh, i just want to point out to the lady the word faith movement we're not picking on the word faith movement but the leadership of the word faith has been approached several times by many different people comparing their doctrine which they're trying to push compared to sound doctrine which has been in the, in the church for 
2,000 years, and their doctrines just don't line up. The problem with the word faith leadership is they refuse to change their doctrine and make it biblical. Yeah, they, they won't submit to the authority of Scripture. Uh, okay, uh, Lonnie, well, yeah, speak just, up. Yeah, just simply put, uh, you know, marching around something seven times, I mean, that would be divination. Well, if you, if you think it's a magical thing, yeah. right. Um, something that, let's get back to our whole point here. Why was it valid to do that? Because God himself told them to do that in that circumstance. And when they did it in obedience and faith, God blessed that. And and, uh, think about Naaman the leper. Go wash yourself in the Jordan seven times. Why did that work? Because God told him through an authoritative prophet that that was what he should do. But that doesn't mean that anybody else that goes and washes in the Jordan seven times will be cured of whatever disease they may have. Um, yes. And those two examples that you just gave, to me, had someone told me to do this, it would be, well, that's kind of silly. But God told them to do it, and because they had faith in what God said, they did it, even though it may have sounded silly to the majority of right. people. So, the way, how, let's, let's do an application now, or maybe an implication as well. What's the implication for us? I believe it would be this. If we know something to be God's authoritative word to us, that we know to be His will, if we obey in faith, God will bless that. Amen. 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 This will be done. All right. But we can't just pull it out of thin air or try to uh, conscript God to in, into our service based on what we think He should do. Kathy. Brought it up, and that was the thing about obedience. And that is, so many people forget that thing about obedience that they don't realize why or what or anything else. Okay, let's go to the back to our text, Hebrews eleven thirty. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd encircled for seven days. So this was obedient faith. God spoke, and they obeyed, and the result was the capture of Jordan, and. The other thing that happened was Rahab was spared. Now let's look at that one. Let's go to that verse 31. By Rahab the harlot uh, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Now, again, connected to the same incident. I wonder why it keeps calling her Rahab the harlot. Why don't they just, you know, kind of let the past go away here? I'll tell you why. Because the, the scripture is giving us evidence that God can save people no matter what they've been in the past. Amen. And that if, and if you might think yourself not fit to serve God, if you have that thought, that's a good step. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's what the law should show us. If, if we can understand we're not fit to serve God, then we're ready to understand faith. That, that we're not here because we're fit. We're not here because we were born to, uh, uh, into the right family. Sometimes I see preachers giving their pedigree, and I, I, it makes me cringe a little bit. I've heard uh, preachers say, well, I came from three generations of Baptist preachers. My, my dad, my great my granddad and my great granddad were all Baptist preachers. 
Okay, I, that is, I guess it's so interesting information. But if you give that with the idea that that proves that you're valid, or that proves that you have a leg up on somebody else, or that God's obviously going to use me, look at my pedigree, then you don't even understand the gospel. Amen. A better way to describe yourself is I was a wretched sinner and God had mercy on me. Amen. And I can't believe that he'd even use me. Amen. So um, the reason sometimes I wonder about these pedigrees is it gives the impression to other people, well, there's no hope for you. Maybe somebody else is saying, well, gee, my dad was a drunkard or my dad was a bank robber or... Yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't ever be used by God. Uh, that's just misunderstanding the gospel. And, and the world typically does misunderstand. I remember when I got saved. And the guys I worked with knew I was a blasphemer. Because they heard me blaspheme. I was so angry at God in, in my, my bitterness. And uh, I was an enemy of the gospel. There's no two ways about it. And I got saved. Those guys saw the change in me. And then the next year, I was in Bible college. So I got saved. I was a junior in chemical engineering. And the next year, I was in Bible college. And one of my co-workers at this feed plant down in Iowa said, well, you could never be a pastor in this town. And I says, well, why do you say that? Because we know who you are. And I, I and, and but I, I try to explain it to them, but see their idea is that you have to have a pedigree. In other words, you you have to sort of be born with the Bible in your hand and be a good person, and that makes you qualified. But my qualification isn't anything but the grace of God shown to an unworthy sinner. And uh, so when it says here, by faith Rahab the harlot, it's is there's a reason why it carries along that designation, not only that you know who she was, it's a pretty unique name, but to show that somebody can have faith even though they're a sinner. Amen. And God will change them. Amen. So th- that story is also in uh, Joshua, let's see, chapter 2, and I don't know if we want to read all of it, but let's look back there. There's some other. There's an interesting implication in this as well. Okay. In verse three of Joshua two, and the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, "Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land." But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She says, "Yes, the men came to me, but I don't know. I did not know where they were from." And when it came about. When it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out, I don't know where the men went. This was a lie. Now, here's an interesting implication, and it'll, it'll cause us a little theological speculation or contemplation, I should say. It says that she did this by faith, but what she did was lie. So how could, be a, how could a lie be an act of faith? Render under season. Like season. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just, just think about it. Uh, this, let me let me tell you what this this discussion is about. It's about ethics, and when you study ethics, and I had a very good ethics teacher at seminary, Dr. Rakestraw, who I've seen him interviewed on TV, on the cha- on Channel Five News uh, about issues like bioethics and 
and so on, because this is a specialty of his, uh, and he's written a textbook about Christian ethics. I don't actually. The interesting thing is, I don't agree with the position, but uh, he he has a very perfectionist position. Position. His position is there are no ethical dilemmas. Um, I don't think he's right, but he he says there's only one thing: God's moral law, and you just obey it no matter what. And and if you do obey it, yeah, if there's some really un, bad unintended consequence, he'll make sure it doesn't happen. Uh, that's a very kind of a minority position. But let me explain the issues and we'll discuss it. There's, there's several ways of dealing with it. The ethical dilemma is this. If there are two commands in the scripture and obeying one makes you disobey the other. Okay, that's an ethical dilemma. All right. Let me give you an example of an obvious ethical dilemma in the Bible. The Bible says, love your father and mother and it will be well with you. But it says also in the Bible... That if that anyone who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy to be my disciple. And it also says in the Bible that if you come come to Christ, you may lose your father and mother. Right? Your family may actually be broken up through the gospel. Husbands turn against wives and fathers against children. So now you have an ethical dilemma. If I obey the gospel and put Jesus Christ first. My parents may reject me. But I'm supposed to love my father and mother, and I don't want my family to be broken up. Because the Bible's in favor of family. So what you have is an ethical dilemma. But how that one's resolved will help us understand what the Lord expects, and how I, I'll tell you what my ethic is. There, there's two ways of looking at it. One of them is called the lesser, well there's more than two, but two that I think are worthy to be on the table of discussion here. Um, one is called the lesser sin, and the other is called the greater good. Um, Lutheran, Lutherans tend to believe in the lesser sin, partly because of Luther's emphasis on that we're sinners and we sin grievously and we sin in word, deed, and, and you say the confession in the Lutheran church, you know how you have the sin confessions? And so there's a real big consciousness that we're really sinners, and so we may have, actually have to do a lesser sin, in the course of living in the face of the earth. But the other view that is defended by Norman Geisler, greater good. And what Norman Geisler says that if there's an ethical dilemma, but there's one uh, command that he's called, it's called graded absolutism. That's, that's what it's called. If there's a command that's more important than another one, and you're, and if obeying the more important one means disobeying the lesser one, it's considered an act of faith and goodness, and you're doing the greater good. And I like that because I think that's how it's handled here in Hebrews. Because it says, by faith, Rahab the harlot hid the spies. So it's considered an act of goodness and an act of faith, and it's the greater good. So we shouldn't lie, but in that circumstance, let's say you were Corey Tenboom and you have Jews hiding in your house, and the Nazis come by, the greater good would be to lie to those Nazis. Even though, if there were no dilemma, it would be wrong to lie. All right, I'm going to open for discussion. Larry and then Mike. <laughs> you know, i got a book on loan to Linda. It's called John Haley's uh, Studies in Contrast, where it studies contrasting styles like that. And in that particular instance about Rahab, he used the word to describe it called confidence. 
Okay. Rahab was countenance of telling that lie. And I haven't, she's got it. I'll get it back and look it up. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, you know, we should be children, but we shouldn't be childlike. You know, we are slaves. We are free. You know, that kind of studies and contrast. You okay. Know, and pretty much. But that's the term he uses. Rahab was countenance because she told that lie. And I, it's interesting to find out how he used it or how he arrived yeah, I would, at the particular word countenance. I, I don't know. But I, I would call it the greater good. Uh, Mike, did you have something you want to say? And I think uh, when we fail to resolve these ethical dilemmas or, or whatever you call them, um, it leads into uh, <coughs> legalism. And I think um, when you look at the Gospels, when Jesus is preaching to the Pharisees and the and the uh, the high priests and stuff, he's he's bringing into contrast this uh, incorrect resolution of these these ethical dilemmas because uh, they took the law and they nitpicked over fine details while losing the spirit of the law and, and actual uh, love for the people that were underneath them. That's a good point. Actually, in, in this issue, uh, when Norman Geisler presents graded absolutism, which is a big term, but it simply means finding the greater good, he said, somebody, some people would say, charged that with being relativistic. Isn't that relativistic? But he says, no, it's not, because the Bible itself tells you what's more important. So we're still just following what it says. Now, in the incident you're talking about, remember, Jesus said, you should, you should have done, the greater good would be mercy. Amen. Right? And so, and justice. So in that section you're talking about there, in Matthew 23, Mike, there is graded absolute. Absolutism means that there are absolute moral teachings in the Bible, which we would all agree with. Graded means that some are more important than others. That justice is more important than counting out those dill seeds when you pay your tithes. And, and it says it right there. This is the greater good. So let's go back to our thing of the gospel. It's an absolute command of God to honor father and mother. But if you have a father and mother that says to you, for you to honor me, what I require of you is to renounce Christ, then you must disobey and believe Christ and be a follower of Jesus Christ, even if it costs you your father and mother. Why? Because Christ is more important than father and mother. It's graded absolutism. You're not setting aside the commandment as if it's not important or it doesn't mean anything, but you just, if forced to choose, you're going to choose the greater good. That's what Rahab did. Amen. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, I hope that helps. Kathy, you haven't had a chance yet. I have a friend who is a single believer, <laughs> and he uses this as a, a reason to justify lying. How do you respond to someone like Justify that? what? Lying. Oh, lying? Well, uh, is he hiding some Hebrew spies? Well. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, uh, <laughs> uh, good. All right. Uh, the question is, well, was somebody who uses this to justify lying? That's why we uh, were calling this graded absolutism. You have to have biblical reason to think that in this situation lying is a greater good. If you don't have any reason for that, then you're just sinning. Like if a woman asks, does my butt look 
<laughs> well, well, now, oh, whoa, whoa, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, that may be the greater good. If, if your if your wife says, "Does this dress make me look fat?" Sometimes de- just to demure is the greater good. Now, how do you answer that without getting in trouble? <laughs> but, uh, but. There may be, you know, circumstances like she was in, like what happened during World War II with Tori Tembu. But most of the time, we just lie because we're liars. <laughs> okay, uh, Lonnie, and, yeah. and then. Um, I, I just just wanted to say that you got to be careful with this, you know, <laughs> about what you say, uh, because uh, cults have used this same type of philosophy or. Whatever you want. Right. But, but you know, it goes back to our hermeneutics. There's an error in implication or an error in application that's, that's happening there. And if we apply this correctly, we won't get in trouble. We'll be doing what's obeying, honoring to God. You want to hand it forward? Oh, he wanted it here. In, in the same manner that uh, Rahab was a harlot, that's not endorsed by Scripture. It, scripture is just saying this is the way it was. Descriptive, not prescriptive. Exactly. Okay. And also, Rahab told a lie. Well, the Scripture is not endorsing that, and all sin has consequences, then that consequence uh, will have its effect. However, God is Rahab's judge, and um, he knows her heart. And for the greater good... She told the lie. Actually, what you're saying is more the, the the lesser sin, but that's okay because that's a valid ethic too. If you want to do it that way, if you're a Lutheran, it's lo- lesser sin. Oh, I'm I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that, being Lutheran. But, but with God, okay. with God being the judge, yeah. uh, He knows her heart. Okay. So anyhow, you didn't know you're going to get a little course on ethics here. Well, there's there's the expert. <laughs> we were just talking about meaning, uh, implication, application, and we're studying a passage, Ryan, where Rahab the harlot, by faith, hid the spies, and, and so we were discussing ethics, the difference between uh, how do you resolve ethical dilemmas, and I was defending the position of the greater good, you know, the Geisler one. Did you study that with Rakestraw? That's an interesting. Do you, which which ethic do you follow? The greater good. Same. Same one. Me, me and Bob usually are the same. Yeah, we think the same. <laughs> Don't we see stuff like that every day? Like our brothers and sisters in, say, China, who the, the Bible tells us to follow the government's laws, but yet at the same time, if it conflicts with the spreading of the word of the gospel, right. then they're imprisoned for it. So they're still doing. That that's another example, and you can find that right in the Bible. That, that's why I believe this greater good idea is a biblical concept. Because it says in Romans 13, obey the authorities. Right? Yes. But Peter said in Acts, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so the greater good is to obey God, but we shouldn't use that ex- as an excuse to not pay taxes or to not drive 55. I'm sorry, I don't always do that. <laughs> I was going 60 just yesterday, I admit it. <laughs> but anyhow, well, if you don't go 60, they run over you. It's the greater good. I'm trying to save my life. 
<laughs> Maybe that's an example of rationalization. Oh, Ryan, do you want to grab the mic here? Oh, nine. Okay. So we can get it on the tape. Gotcha. The interesting thing about uh, the whole issue with hermeneutics and Rahab is you can read the the account in Genesis or Joshua or, or Joshua and see that there is a somewhat of a question on whether this is as as we studied prescriptive or descriptive. But we again going to the the principle of going throughout the whole counsel of God, we get into Hebrews and it's very clear that she did these things by faith. Right. Therefore, we see, okay, clarified, this is and it does give credence to the whole issue of this whole ethical concept of the greater good. And that goes for all things as for and as Bob mentioned, for authority. And I've I've actually used this example where, uh, you know, all issues of authority, and especially, like, for instance, in the family, I had an instance where there was a, uh, a young lady who her husband was trying to use the Bible, and those of you who are in my hermeneutics class have heard this, have you used the Bible saying, you must submit your husband, therefore, you must come and watch parking with me, because you need to submit your husband. Look, the Bible says that. Well, no, that's not the case, because there's a greater authority that needs to be heeded, right. and that is the Lord. So if, if your husband is trying to command you to do things that are contrary to what Christ has, you go to the greater authority and obey him more than all. And that's where we get yeah. like the principle in Acts 2, where we are to submit to the authorities, but the authorities commanded the apostles to stop preaching the gospel. And he said, no, who are we to obey you or God? Well, yeah, exactly. And we were talking earlier, Ryan, before you got here, about... Um, just the whole gospel itself, where you have to, you can't father and mother more than Christ, even though elsewhere it commands you to love father and mother. Yeah, so this principle yeah and and it also applies in other in in situations. Uh, um, I've uh, I think it applies to divorce. And if you when you talk about Paul, when Paul talks about allowing the unbeliever to depart, um, I think that falls under the greater good. Because it's not to devalue the importance of marriage, but there may be a greater good in some circumstance. And so, therefore, you, uh, you can understand that way. Yes. In 1959, when I was quite pregnant with my third child, uh, I was at a church, Lutheran, which had just gotten a new young pastor who was giving classes like in the Augsburg Confession and things. And uh, he was telling us about what was in that particular Lutheran church's constitution, which was, you shall not belong to secret organizations. Ninety percent of the congregation were Masons. And so uh, we had a congregational meeting with the intent that they were going to kick him out of the church. And I stood up and read their constitution. And I said, this is your book. And I showed it to them. And this is what it says in your church's constitution also the uh, Synod's Constitution. And the lady behind me whacked me across my quite pregnant valley and said I should get out of there because I didn't know what I was talking about. And I ran out, and my husband and I and the family left the church. But my folks who were Masons, my dad was a uh, Mason, my mother Eastern Star, my sister a Job's daughter. Now, I really offended them. And I, I know that I hurt my parents, but I didn't follow my parents. And I wasn't a Christian. It was legalistic. Now, what was wrong and right? You know, I, I know that I offended them because I... Well, if you if you know that this is a, 
uh, false religion, which is what, maybe you didn't know that, but it is. The Masonic Lodge is a false religion. Then to warn people to, to leave it, it would be the greater good. Um, well, interesting discussion. Linda. Oh, hold on here. we got to get you on the mic. Somebody said that they're real bothered by this, that they went to the house of a harlot because it said, go view the land, especially Jericho. Then the next uh, sentence is, so they went and came into the house of a harlot. And he said, why did they go there? I mean, that is a bad thing. And they were immediately uncovered because somebody found out right away where they were. You know, and okay. I, mean, I, I just feel like, okay, <laughs> then going on, I mean, something good came out of it because she exercised faith. But they had no business going there, as far as I um, see. Now, okay, this is another chance to learn. Now, when you're interpreting narrative, all right, we're talking about hermeneutics a lot this morning, the right of the scripture, authorial intent and meaning, gives clues whether something is a bad thing or a good thing um, in the text. Now, in, and this is an important one because people get wrong because the Bible says a lot of things happen. Sometimes it may just be neutral. It's, it's an insignificant detail. But if it's uh, written so to show that it's a bad thing, there's got to be clues in the context or in the grammar. Yes. All right, and I don't see a clue there that the writer of Joshua was trying to indicate they did a bad thing by going there. Not in that, not, not in that context. It doesn't say that. So that's reading into the text. Now we know Jesus went to a house. Remember where, where he was, and this woman came and was weeping on at his feet, and they were saying, "You shouldn't be here." Okay, as long as this is Hermeneutic Sunday, <laughs> let me let me tell you something that I got today uh, this week in an email from somebody. This, this guy out east, who I've actually quoted in my book, he, he's one of the more articulate opponents to the secret movement out there. And he was, he was in a church with 10,000 members. And when the Purpose Driven Life first came out, the, the pastor bought, or the church bought 10,000 copies of it, one for each member. And I quote that in my book because I'm using, that's, that's how they leverage the brand identity in, in this uh, franchise system. He sell one pastor, he sold 10,000 bucks. Now, I just got an email from the same guy this last week. And he says that he had written a letter to his pastor protesting entertainment, rock music, secular everything, lack of gospel preaching. And the pastor's response was he wrote this thing that he sent to everybody in the congregation accusing this people like this Josh of being Pharisees. And, and he gave four examples. Jesus went... And it was talking to this immoral woman, and the Pharisees judged him. Four times Jesus was hanging out with sinners, and he was judged by the Pharisees. And so the pastor took those incidents and said, that's why we have church the way we are, so that sinners will like our church and come. And anybody that doesn't like it's a Pharisee. So this Josh sent me this stuff, and he said, how do I respond to that? Am I wrong? And I said, well, no, it's a misuse of scripture. It, it's, it's, it, it, there's a, here, here is a misapplication is what it is. Um, it's a category error is what I call it. 
the church wasn't born until the day of Pentecost. Amen. All right? And the term church means the called out ones. And the Bible describes what the church should be like and what we should be doing in church. We should fellowship around the Word of God uh, and prayer and breaking bread, which is communion. The church is for Christians. Any sick can come, and we shouldn't put up barriers, but we do what we do. And they, but but the, the correct application to that would be what we do when we go out into the world, Right? And I told him, we go out here on the street and we do outreaches. We even have a blues band. That's not what we do for Sunday morning service, but that's how we reach sinners. And we talk to anybody, Amen. no matter how down and out, no matter how sinful, no matter what religion they are, no matter anything about them, we are there reaching out to those people. We feed them, we give them the Word of God, and we reach out with the Gospel. And if we said, no, stay away from me, you're too sinful... When somebody wants to know about the gospel, that would be being a Pharisee. Amen. But the, the idea that you take the church and turn it into a nightclub so that we aren't Pharisees is a total mis... Do you see how that's a hermeneutical error? It's a misapplication. There's truth to what he said, but not. But it's not how you define the church. Yes, Sam. Oh, there, here he comes. Actually, you, you, you took my... The window on myself. <laughs> that this church, uh, these seeker-sensitive churches, are essentially turning themselves into a den of something that is going to attract other uh, sinners. Right. Essentially, so right. these, they, they want to attract sinners, and so does this church. But they are molding themselves into the worldly uh, functions of uh, right. what's going on. Make it, they're trying to make the church like the world, so the world will like the church. But if you read the whole the whole principle, the whole counsel of God implications, the applications. All of this is important. So that's why hermeneutics... Uh, Ryan, you're gonna, are you going to do your class in the spring? Okay. No, yeah, because... Probably starting in... Well, yeah, I'll be starting probably in February. February? Okay. If you, if, you, if you didn't get in there because it was full, we'll, we'll do it again. I taught hermeneutics twice myself, but it was like in the 80s and early 90s. Because, why? Because each of the tools... Because people use the Bible wrongly to put us in bondage or to confuse us. And if you have the tools, you can see what's wrong with it. Because this, even this fellow that emailed me is a wonderful brother, but he, he was kind of taken aback, like, well, am I really being a Pharisee? And when you learn hermeneutical principles, not only are you going to read the Bible better, but I've, I've said that, I gave this example. I gave this example in the class last week is more than anything, learning the, the, the way to properly handle the word of truth will turn you into a much more of a discerning Christian. Because you're going to recognize the misuse of Scripture. And I, last Sunday, I apologize for the repeating all my hermeneutics here, but last Sunday I was up late and there was a, a new word of faith preacher on. And he quoted he, he 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 wanted everyone to call in to get these prosperity the green prosperity handkerchiefs <clears throat> that's what he wanted everybody to call in and get and he says but i have based my ministry and everything i've done on the word of god so turn with me to acts 19 so he turned to acts 19 they brought handkerchiefs about the handkerchiefs how paul had it and <laughs> you know and people were healed and i'm not kidding they had video of what to do with the handkerchiefs and they had taken People had their wallets out, and you lay the handkerchief on the wallet. And it'll, it, and it'll, so there is a 
misinterpretation uh, and the implications are on there in the application. Yeah, right. Part. Everything is wrong Everything across the board, but it seems plausible to the unsuspecting. If somebody would just tune into that show, having no biblical whatsoever, and they would have, they had a Bible sitting on the on the shelf and would have taken it off and turned to them, they may think, well, this guy, he's, yeah, he's right. He's right he in the Bible. There. Uh, but, you know, Paul didn't get it right. He forgot <laughs> to take up an offering. <laughs> okay, uh, well, I, I see that we're out of time. We went over. Sorry about that. Uh, we'll see you upstairs at 1030. In the meantime, we have fellowship time.